Greetings, Little Wars TV fans, and welcome to part six of our ongoing series, How to Write Homebrew Wargaming Rules. I think today's podcast could be our final chapter in the series, as our club's revolutionary war game, Live Free or Die, moves into the final stages of development. In this episode, Greg talks to Dave Taylor, a professional graphic designer, about how you can take your Microsoft Word notes and transform them into a gorgeous rulebook. Dave has a long resume and list of credentials in the hobby industry, including White Dwarf Magazine. Today, he's a freelance designer who works with authors around the world on their projects. In this podcast, he's going to be giving away some incredible insights on his process, including practical tips that you can use on your own. Take some notes, guys, because this podcast is full of ideas to help elevate your homebrew projects to a more professional level. Sit back, relax, find a good single malt scotch, and enjoy the episode. Well, again, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Um, I guess, well, talking to you is sort of one of the last stops on the journey. I guess if people, uh, you know, if they make it far enough down the road, then they want to probably have something that looks a little bit nicer than a Microsoft Word (laughs) document that they typed up. Yep. And I thought you would be, uh, you'd be the perfect person to talk to about sort of how the jump happens. Sure. uh, And what it looks like. So maybe a great place to start would be just a little bit about your background in the hobby and particularly with layout and graphic design and sort of where you, uh, where you cut your teeth. Bit of background about myself. I started uh, playing tabletop war games probably about 30 years ago. Uh, And at the time I was doing graphic design at, at university. So um, while I was there, we were learning a lot of different things like illustration, typesetting, um, photography, a whole range of different things. Uh, when I started the course, we weren't using computers. Um, in fact, one of my uh, lecturers said, uh, somebody asked her, oh, what, what, oh, this typesetting machine is all well and good, but when we start using computers? And she was like, computers, they're a fad. <laughs> You're showing your age here, Dave. Really, I know. But, but by the end, we were using computers like every time, every day, every single day. We had a huge hard drive that we had to take with us and carry all that stuff on it. Uh, so yeah, definitely showing my age there. But um, yeah, so then over the years, I uh, worked for Games Workshop uh, in retail, and then I moved into their um, promotion studio in Australia and started doing layout for White Dwarf, um, creating articles, that kind of thing. Uh, when I moved to the US, uh, I continued doing that, writing articles, working on uh, books like the, the General's Compendium, for example. Uh, but yeah, lots of lots of layout along the way, uh, lots of editing. Photography uh, came when I started working for War Games Illustrated in 2009. Uh, but I think over the years, I probably laid out for for like published magazine articles would have to be in the several thousand pages of um, published magazine articles. So uh, I like to think that I know what I'm doing when it comes to layout and and providing a good layout that people want to read and people will remember or people won't have difficulty understanding the content. So um, and because I've done it all for, for toy soldier stuff, because that's what I'm excited about. It's uh, it's been very cool. Well, I'm not going to claim that I've seen all thousand of your pages, but uh, but I feel like I've seen a decent number of them, and uh, and that's why we're having this conversation because I think you do a great job with your layouts. And one of the the big questions I have is, um, 
how, what's your process like when you're approaching a new project? Because I have seen a number of different books that you've worked on and they all have their own style. You know, they don't all look the same. It's not like you have some standard formula that I can tell that you're using. So where does the inspiration come from and how do you determine when you get your hands on a new project, what the overall kind of look and style is gonna be like for that project? Right, um, basically I, uh, I talk with the author, uh, working with a, um, like a standard like US letter or an A4 size page, uh, about 500 words will get you half a page. Uh, so if they're looking for uh, a book that's going to have a balance, like a 50-50 balance of um, text and images, be they maps, photos, illustrations, whatever, uh, then you're looking about for every two pages, it's a thousand words. So uh, it might be that their game is 2000 words long, but it needs to be quite illustration heavy. So that might mean that uh, we'd look at something that might be a 48 page book um, or booklet when it's 48 pages, it's going to be booklet size. Um, or it might be that they have 200,000 words and they don't need a lot of images because it's a lot of, um, a lot of special rules. For example, uh, I've worked on the Genesis project with Gary Krieger uh, and that has a lot of special rules that don't require a lot of um, basically abilities and powers and that sort of thing that don't require a lot of illustration. So um, the, uh, the process really is to talking with the, the author and finding out what balance they're looking for. Uh, and then and sort of working out where we can go from there, what size book they're looking for and what balance. Do you, uh, do you find yourself looking at other people's books for inspiration or ideas? Are you sort of a, a connoisseur of other, <laughs> other rules in magazines? Is that... Um, you know, I'm not in the world of graphic design, so I, I always wonder sort of how much, you know, how much you look to other people or if you have anybody else that you really look up to that you think, oh, yeah, you know, they, they do a really great job. Um, I do. I do look at a lot of um, a lot of I do look through, I flick through a lot of books uh, and I look at things that might that might grab me. Might, might, there might be an illustration style or um, a very dynamic layout uh, that um, will grab me. Uh, and I also look at books that have that I, I kind of I might expect to have like terrible what I call, might call terrible layouts they're not actually terrible they're just not as helpful as they could be particularly when it comes to rule books so rule books and magazine articles are kind can kind of be two different things um, I say that because uh, with a with a rule book there's a series of uh, series of pieces of information that you want to be able to digest as a player and you want to be able to digest them in a sensible way, uh, have like the least amount of confusion possible, um, and in a in a way that I always feel that you should um, digest rules in the same way that you're going to use them on the tabletop. So if you've got a, a turn system that has five phases, don't be telling me about phase four if I haven't read about phase one, two, or three yet. Um, there might be something in phase one that affects phase four, but you can tell me in phase one that it's going to come up later. And then when you get to phase four, you can tell me how that phase one thing affected it. Um, so it's sometimes um, talking with, uh, with authors, they can, because they've, they've been working on their game for a long time, or it might be, it might be a fairly short time, but usually it's a couple of years 
and they're going through and they've rewritten it and rewritten and rewritten it and they're so they're very very close to it they're right at the coal face there and they can't they they can sometimes have difficulty stepping back and seeing that the pieces that they've put together haven't aren't quite in that logical process so sometimes it'll be i'll, I'll read through and think about okay if i was playing this game do i have everything I need to know and it might be as simple as something something like i don't need i don't know where i need to deploy well, that's a critical piece of information yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's like i know i know how i can kill my can kill your guys but i've got no idea where to put my guys to start that conflict so um it can be things like that so it's a matter of yeah just talking with them going back and forth uh and sometimes it's a matter of saying hey the this um it feels like it would be a little bit smoother if this was this section was moved or um, can we repeat this information at another point? Um, or, hey, I don't know where the deployment zones are. And they might go, oh, oh yeah, well, there's a standard deployment zone thing right at the end. Okay, well, let's, t let's mention that up here, up, up the front. So uh, it's basically discussion, going back and forth, working out um, all those things, what style, what blend of images and text, uh, do we have the logical process through learning the rules for the, the player, that kind of thing. So you're actually, I mean, you're describing two hats that you're wearing. I mean, you're not just doing graphic design and layout. You're also sort of an editor as well. There, yeah, there's definitely an editorial element in there. There's, so there's, there's, there's the, like the grander editorial idea of discussing content. Um, and there's also, uh, there are times where I'm also doing the um, like copy editing Let's make sure this grammar is correct, or can I can I catch all of the, the spelling errors, or um, why is this person use this particular colloquialism? Um, one fun thing that uh, that I'll mention is that uh, when I work for War Games Illustrated, their approach is uh, because we have like U.S. English and British English. Uh, their approach is whoever uh, wherever the author comes from, that's the approach that we take. So. There'd be a lot of times where it'd be like, okay, where is so-and-so from? Okay, I don't need to worry about having use in color or honor or armor or whatever it happens to be. But uh, again, that's a stylistic thing. So um, at the end, people will still understand it, but it's just a matter of being consistent in style. So before we started recording, I, I know that we talked a little bit about the project that we're working on here, a sort of evolution of homebrew rules and um, people listening, many of them are probably dabbling in homebrew rules. Uh, from a layout and sort of graphic design perspective, you've been at this for a long time. Um, are there any trends um, that you have noticed in the last couple of years, at least, um, in the way that rule books in particular are, are being done? I mean, what's, what's sort of the current zeitgeist in terms of layout, professional layout and graphic design that maybe wasn't the case 10 years ago um i think yeah that's a good good question i think uh, the there are certain companies that have been doing um doing some good layout uh, some really solid layout in in terms of uh providing that information in a logical manner uh where phases or um particular steps uh, combat or movement are all encompassed in a you know when it starts you know when that section starts and you know when that section ends um so there are quite a, a lot of companies have been doing that for a long time um 
some of the, a lot of the bigger companies like Battlefront and uh, Wall of Games, Games Workshop, that kind of thing. Um, for the smaller um, publishers or the smaller, um, uh, basically people who are creating their own own rules and, and putting the, them together in a Microsoft Word document, sometimes it's a little bit, can be a little bit difficult to get the page breaks right or text flow and that kind of thing so that your uh, important sections ended up end up mashed together uh, so the flow can be a little bit odd or it, it feels like there's a big section you've got to learn when really it's movement shooting and combat all in one one section so um i just like to personally i like to go through and break those things up i think there are a lot of um a lot of companies who are doing that kind of taking that kind of approach um the and and a lot of smaller publishers or i think more and more people who are looking to publish their own rules are thinking about that kind of aspect of it um i'm i'm going to mention a, a company here um i love a lot of the rules that they do but sometimes their uh, approach to their blue books the um osprey war game series yes yes it, their, their, their approach to their blue books is exactly the same approach as to their um, like the Men at Arms series or the Warfare series or that kind of thing. And it's just everything flows. It's, it's like, here's the template, drop in all the text, done. And it's like, ah, actually, this would have been a lot nicer. We wouldn't have had that little widowed line or that. Somebody, somebody had gone through and just like, Hit page return would be fine, but uh, uh, I'll admit I've never understood the Blue Book series. I mean, we we game a lot of Osprey games in our club, and I and I and I like a lot of their games, but it is so well. The games are obviously very hit or miss. I think in terms of quality, there's some really good ones. There's some that are like, ooh, not sure how that one slipped past the goalie. Um, and then the layout, I, I've never understood why they don't put a little bit more effort into the layout. I mean, so many of the Osprey books that aren't the Blue Book series look incredible. I mean, that's what they're known for. They look amazing. And then a lot of these Blue Book series, it's like someone literally just like took a picture with their cell phone and dropped it in. And it's like, oh, well, there's a good half page photo. I don't yeah. I don't get it. It's because it's a big company and they've made a lot of amazing products. Yep, yep. I think, uh, I think there's a, uh, on that one, I, I, have, I have thoughts on it, but um, I think it's because uh, they have a format that they're that they work with that they've worked with for decades that they're very comfortable with and they're very like oh I understand that anything time something steps outside of it it's it's difficult for certain people in the company to understand um, so I think they're they have the, the format for example might be okay um, oh gaslands this sounds it's, it's like car wars okay radio um, we'll just we'll put it in the blue book. Um, we'll make three thousand of them, and we'll be done. That's it. Print three thousand, and we'll be done. Um, Dragon Rampant. We'll put it in the blue book. We'll print three thousand. We'll be done, and that's it. And it goes out through their their channels, and they they plan to sell out. They like those books. They go out. Maybe they'll have a hundred left in the warehouse somewhere. But their, their plan is for those to go uh, like be printed, go out to all of the stores that carry their books, and they don't have to worry about it again. So I think from a from an economic standpoint, it kind of makes makes sense because it, it's a system that works for them. Um, with something like uh, Last Days, for example, um, which is uh, Ash Barker's game, the zombie apocalypse game, um, that has a very particular audience, and it's an audience that's been that's grown up on Games Workshop production value. So, to take the extra time to 
create some extra um, new illustrations to provide a, a, a better looking layout. It's like, okay, great. Yeah, we can use this. And uh, there's a there's benefit behind it because it will bring more people to the to the game. Um, same with uh, like some of the uh, some of the Joe McCullough games. Um, so like the, the reprint of Frostgate, oh, Frostgrave, right? Um, Stargrave, mm -hmm. uh, Rangers of Shadow Deep, that kind of thing. There's a there's a benefit, direct financial benefit behind taking that extra step. So um, that that they can see. I personally, I think the difference between a well laid out book and a um, sort of a Microsoft Word document with the cell phone photos in it. Um, there's a there's a significant difference for me as to the um, enjoyment of of learning about the game or reading the rules for it um, that has that value to it, but not everybody not everybody sees that. Yeah. So you have talked a little bit about the importance of laying out the text and the sections in a sensible way for a reader, which is obviously very critical. Um, talk talk to us for just a minute about. I don't know how to say this, like how to make the book look pretty. <laughs> so um, the, the sort of flourishes that you like to work in or that you've seen that, that you like. Um, and, I'm, and I'm thinking of this sort of specifically as maybe tips or sure. just a little bit of advice for people who might be listening to this, who have a Microsoft Word document and sure. are thinking about, okay, you know, how do I punch this up? What would a professional like yourself, you know, what, what might you offer as some uh, some food for thought on how to how to take that and make it look pretty after they've laid it out in a sensible progression? Sure. Um, so the uh, the first thing I'll talk about is uh, font choice. Um, there are so the two the two main breakdowns of font. You've got uh, serif fonts, which are fonts that have the little squiggly bits on the edges. They're the feet. So serif is foot. I think it's foot or feet, something like that. Um, and then there's sans serif, which are the ones that don't have those, right? So a classic example, Times or Times New Roman, for example, is a serif font. Uh, and Hel uh, no, um, yeah, Helvetica is a sans serif font or Futura or there's a whole bunch of both, um, both of them. So for every, uh, for, the, for the font that you're working with, if you're working in a, uh, if you're looking at a, like a classic uh, or historical um setting um or a fantasy setting typically serif fonts are ones that you want to go to for the feel a feel of the period obviously there was no printing press so there were no no specific fonts for like ancient greek warfare <laughs> uh but having a serif font will um will feel and we'll give it that that older kind of feel um sans serif fonts are great for uh, modern or futuristic um, sort of thing. So basically, take today. If you're going forward, go with the sans serif font. If you're going back, serif font. Um, that's not always 100%, but it's a, it's a great thing that it works with it. Um, font size. If you're depending on the sort of the, it's going to sound odd, but the target sort of age demographic of your game. Um, don't go any smaller than nine point uh, with your font. Uh, Ten. 11 is probably probably fine don't like 10 is a good one to start with if it takes you too many pages it goes over your page count drop it down a little bit if it doesn't put it up a little bit but don't 
and also avoid some going with like 15, 16 point to fit in. Like, oh, I've got 96 pages to fill, but I've only got text to fill at 70 of them. Don't make it too big because people don't want to read it like a kid's coloring book kind of thing. Uh, so that's my the thing with fonts. Um, columns is another thing. So uh, when you look at a novel, a novel is basically laid out in a single column. So single column per page. Text goes from left all the way across the right. And typically in novels, that text is uh, justified left to right and can have hyphens to split words. Um, for rule books, the kind of the standard approach to a rule book is two columns um, because it's uh, generally the information being provided is, is in smaller, smaller chunks and they can fit neatly in in two columns, um, reading all the way across a line of text about a, a concept that you're trying to jam into your head can be a little bit tough. So it's easier for those shorter columns. You, the brain works a little bit differently with it. Um, so two columns, which might mean that you have a like two and a half column setup on your page if you want to have a, a nice sort of fancy sidebar or um, a place to put little comments or illustrations or a border on the side of on your page. But um, generally, I think everything that I go for, if it's a rule book or an instructional book of some kind, um, it's a two column approach. Um, magazine articles, you could even stretch to three columns. Um, so, uh, but there are your choices, choices there. Uh, personally, I like to have some sort of texture in the background. Um, you can do that from something like a parchment page, if you're going um, with, uh, with something that's, that's typically something that's ancient or even like basically dark ages back, um, something parchment. Um, I re uh, when I did the layout for Disposable Heroes 2 uh, for Brigade Games from um, Keith's rule set, uh, I went with um, basically uh, pages um, the basically yeah, aged pages uh, or paper that had uh, coffee stains, like coffee mug stains, that kind of thing on it. So that it could look like these have been sitting around on a planning table somewhere and somebody put their coffee down in the morning and they were looking at what they were going to do that day. Uh, so you can do things like, like that. Um, but it's some, I like, personally, I like to have some sort of texture it gives a little bit of depth to the, the piece, but you want to make sure that your texture and your the color of whatever you're putting behind it isn't interfering with the text. Just want, you want to make it completely readable. Um, then uh, borders or frames are the next thing. Uh, you could go for a simple line frame around the edge of the columns so that uh, I think that's that's probably better for a um, like for an older style if you're looking for again something modern back. So uh, I always one of the things that I, I do if I'm doing something if I was looking at something that was like World War One, uh, for example, I'd, I'd go back and look at newspapers of the day. Uh, if I was doing something um, Victoriana, I'd look at uh, posters to get a feel for the the typefaces that we used or the the borders or the edges or 
the Victoriana thing is, is great because there are so many different corners and filigree pieces and so on uh, that you can use. But yeah, that's a, that's another approach that you can take. Um, borders can be a little bit tough because they can cr uh, squeeze the, the text in quite a bit. Uh, so if you're going to plan to work with a border, start with that and then fit your text in and see how that impacts your design. But uh, yeah, lots of different ways that you can, can work with it there. And if you, the other thing as well is once you create a, um, a grid, a kind of a, a look, if you're going that two column look, uh, your photos or your images then should do a number of things. They, they can be one column wide, two columns wide, or the entire page wide, but probably shouldn't be a third of a page column wide because um, you can start to really break like mess with the whole comfortable feel what people want when they when they read through a book is there's a there becomes a like fairly quickly a familiarity with it so you know where the page numbers are going to be you know where the headings will be on the page so that when they open something they can go okay i'm not at the start of a section because it doesn't have this thing um doesn't have this header font or this subheader font that kind of thing so uh those are things that just need people need to consider and consistency with consistency is another key thing so you, you mentioned uh, that you like texture on the back of your pages yep. which i i love as well when i'm reading a rule book it looks great this does bring up though a bit of a a current i think hot button topic in the wargaming community because this gets into the question of what is the difference between laying out what you know is going to be a printed book versus a pdf because okay. there are a lot of people a lot of people and i admit that bothers me as well when you download a pdf and it's got the freaking like texture background and it's bleeding my printer and it's like <laughs> god you know why did they not lay this out with like a white background because it's a pdf and i'm printing it um, sure. so what what kind of considerations go into or are there considerations that you have to take into account when you're doing a print project versus what you know will be a, a pdf project I think you've uh, yeah. There's, I think there there are two two aspects here, and um, one of them like I, I personally hadn't thought of, uh, so I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, the first one, uh, first thing is uh, image size. Um, printing uh, is done at uh, 300 DPI, so 300 dots per inch. So if you're um, if you have an image that is 600 pixels wide, it's going to look good. At, being at two inches wide or smaller. If you try to make it six inches wide, it's going to, you're going to get a pixelation occurring. Uh, online or PDF, 72 DPI is, is kind of the standard. So print requires something that is four times, uh, like at least four times the, um, the resolution. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm laying out some books at the moment um, that are art books. So what I'm going through is like, okay, if the, the artists have sent me a picture and it's like, ah, this is too small for what we want to do with it. Can, do you have the piece? Can you reshoot it? Uh, and if you do reshoot it, should it fit this size for me, please? Uh, then we can put it in as a nice big full page picture. Otherwise we need to find a smaller spot for it, that kind of thing. So when we're talking about the cell phone pics, um, generally cell phones these days can take pictures of good enough resolution. You just want to make sure that your focus and your lighting is, is good. But um, 
yeah, if you've taken a photo and you've put, used it on a website uh, site and you've resized it so that it doesn't take up too much space on your hard drive, it might not work in a printed document, but it could still work in a PDF. Uh, but the printing out of the PDFs is another another aspect. Uh, for the for the books that I've done, the PDFs that I've provided have, have basically been based on the print document. Uh, so you can run it through and you can reduce the file size and, and bring the file size itself right down so that people if people are looking at it on their phone or on a um, tablet uh, or on their laptop or whatever, they can still see it and read it and see it as it was designed kind of thing. Uh, the next step then is for for people who are publishing is to have probably the the print uh, print print your own rules friendly version, I guess, which then would drop out all of that um, texture. Make sure that if there was any um, non-integral images that have white text on them, that's part of the that, that is a part of the rules. Make sure that those are dropped out and turned back into black uh, into black text. Uh, a lot of those sort of things that. So that that's an extra step to basically to, to almost to find a way to deconstruct the uh, the original design, the original layout. So it's um, there's an interesting balance there that, that I guess has to be struck. Uh, my rulebook clients haven't asked for that, and so I haven't thought about it. But now that you mention it, it's like I'll go back and mention it to them. Whoever whoever comes along and says I'd like this. We'll try and find a way. Um, and if you are concerned about it and you don't want to have to do that sort of deconstruction process, uh, if you do put a texture in, make sure it's a pale gray and it sits behind. <laughs> it's, uh, so it doesn't really have too much of a problem. Um, I just, uh, well, earlier this year, I finished off the um, the Drug War Z uh, game for Brigade. And I do have the textured background I have there is basically it's a um, like a cinder block wall again, in, in, a, in a pale gray that sits behind all the text, but it wouldn't sap a lot of printer ink at all. So something like that might be the solution. If you're going to put a texture in, make sure it's pale gray on white. Make it an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> yep. One thing that uh, people can think about when they're publishing their, their first sort of rules is when they lay it out, they can design it for print, but they don't necessarily have to take it to print straight away. Uh, when I worked on This Is Not A Test for uh, Joey Maguire in World's End Publishing, uh, basically I laid out the rule book and Joey released it as a PDF. Um, I think it was like a $25, 20, $25 PDF. Uh, and he built up a community around his game. And within six months, people were like, where's the book? Where's the book? I want to get the hardback book. Where's the book? Where's the book? Um, so like a year after he released the game, he ran the Kickstarter for it, uh, where he had the the hardback book was the core of it, and he added some miniatures to his um, his range alongside that. Uh, but uh, incredibly successful Kickstarter, and got basically all the layout work was already done. He didn't have to pay me for that again, and uh, he could take it straight to straight to print. So um, definitely something to, to consider. Print doesn't have to be your first option, but if you're planning for print the, later on, design for print. So, so uh, when, when you're working on layouts, what are the tools? What, what's the software that you like to use? And then as a follow-up question, what might 
a beginner who's listening to this, who's not a professional, I assume they may not be using the same software as you, uh, what might be a good place for them to fool around? Okay, uh, sure thing. Um, I use uh, Adobe InDesign, uh, which is kind of the, it's been the, the, industry, the design industry standard for the last 15 years. Right. Uh, and the, when, when did they switch to it? I can't remember, they, remember, I remember exactly when they switched. Probably about three years ago, I think, they switched to a cloud-based uh, approach. So uh, you, and a subscription based approach. So I think for uh, InDesign is $20 a month subscription. So is that $240 a year? Not uh, terrible. Not terrible, no. If you're doing, if you're laying out two, three books a year or are you doing fanzines or anything like that, it's actually, it's not too bad. And uh, you get, if, if they do an update, you get that every time and you don't have to pay extra for that update. Uh, the um you can create pdfs directly from that uh you can um, do all all sorts of stuff there's loads of, of different things you can do there uh prior to that uh in my design career i used uh quark express which up until that point was the industry standard i remember so, that program i used that in high school right yep so uh, that was a, a, it was kind of like a fancier version of um, PageMaker. Uh, but the general, the general thing behind um, both, uh, well, behind PageMaker and Quark Express and InDesign is that they the document is created in layers. So you have, you can have any, any number of layers, but each item you put on uh, onto the document is a separate layer. So you can have photos that sit over the top of text or text that sits over photos. Um, Microsoft Word works a little bit differently. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't like to put anything over anything else and create huge gaps and push things around. Um, you've got to be a real Microsoft Word whiz to be able to get it to do anything near what uh, these other programs can do. So if you're looking for a, a, a less expensive um, version, cheaper version of um, something like InDesign. Uh, if you look at something like, um, and I will caveat this by saying I've never used any of these others, but I did a little bit of research beforehand. <laughs> You're well prepared. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it looks like um, a couple of ones to look at. Uh, Quark Express is still, still in there because they don't have a subscription service. They have the latest version you buy the latest version and you have the latest version. So um, until they change the, they go to the new version and then you could pay for the upgrade, kind of the old, the old software model. Um, they've stuck with that. So that's still available. Uh, and I think it's about 40 or $50. Oh, that's very reasonable. Which isn't too bad. Yeah. Uh, it used to be ridiculous amounts of money. <laughs> it was up towards a thousand dollars to buy it. Uh, yeah, it was crazy, but uh, and it was much less to update it as they put up the updates. But that initial purchase was. But uh, another one to look at would be Affinity Affinity Publisher, that um, seems to be one of the sort of the strongest candidates for the um, for the non-subscription model. Uh, they have I think a lot of these have free trial as well. That you can check out, and take a look at. Um, see how intuitive they are 
Um, I'd like to say that InDesign is intuitive, but I've always used a program like it. So I'm not a good judge of it. I haven't come into it completely fresh, but uh, yeah, all of these others, you, you can go in and check out free what they're, what that intuitive sort of aspect is. Because when it comes down to it, if you're designing a game and you're excited about toy soldiers, learning the ins and outs of a layout program might not be the next thing that you want to do. Like 3D printing, right? Who needs another hobby? Yeah, it is. It's its own <laughs> hobby, honestly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Affinity Publisher, uh, Viva Designer is another one. So V-I-V-A Designer and Scribus, uh, which apparently been touted as the best open source desktop publisher. So that's uh, C S C R I B U S Scribus. Uh, so yeah, you can take a look at those. Um, and yeah, as I said, hopefully they they all have um, free trials, or that Scribus is open source. That's probably completely free then. Yeah. Uh, to check those out. But one of the things that I will say, um, I mentioned the things about like the column width, uh, columns, and then creating the grid as to how wide your photos are, your images are, that kind of thing. Um, take a look at if you've never done it before take a look at a lot of books look for that grid see how how things are aligned how they flow look at things that you like and look at things that you don't like and see if we work out like why was it done this way why don't i like it looking that like that why don't i like this um, one thing that i like for example is i'm not a fan of um justified text meaning that the text that goes completely from left to completely right. Um, I like to do the aligned left, ragged right is what it's called. Um, and so that it removes all of the, the hyphens because sometimes you can, particularly if you do go to that two column format, you can have a situation where like every third line has a hyphen and that just breaks the flow for me. Um, it might not break for the flow for you and you might not be worried about it. So go for that justified text. But uh, one of the other things I'll mention is um, balance. Think about uh, whenever you are looking at a, or creating your grid and also looking at starting to lay out your book, um, balance is how the weight of everything on the page feels. Like, does your page feel imbalanced because you've got a little bit of text over here and some very dark, heavy pictures on the left and a, a light, bright picture on the right? So um, it feels like the page is heavy on one side. I know we're talking sort of super abstract things here, but um, I'm not saying that every page should be symmetrical because symmetrical becomes very boring um, quite quickly. But you want to have uh, pages that have a, have a nice flow to them, have the images in good places and text in, in good places as well but you don't want to have um, regularly imbalanced pages. So that's, a, that's an important thing. Um, sometimes when you're looking through, might be looking through a PDF that is page by page, you won't get to see the balance across the, the entire sp spread of the book. So two pages together is called a spread. So I should have mentioned that up front, but um, so I always design for the spread. So sometimes that gets broken when you split the, um, split the pages into that page by page sort of look, but uh, yeah, that's just another thing to consider if you're if you're doing it yourself. Go through, lay it out, and then 
print it out and hand it to somebody and say, what's what's good and what's not good about this? Um, That's great advice. It is. Um, and I know these are our abstract concepts and people are listening to us on an audio podcast right now. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm using my hands so much here, <laughs> so much, but nobody can see them. And I apologize for that. Luckily, I think everybody listening to this has probably read a lot of wargaming rule books because, you know, if you're a wargamer, then by default, you're a collector of <laughs> a collector of rule books. Yep. So we've all seen books that we like, and we've probably all seen books that we weren't as impressed with. So I think that is great advice to just, you know, set those out and try and deconstruct them a little bit. Yeah. Yep. Sure. There's a lot that can be, that can be learned there. Um, as we, as we get close to wrapping this up, I, I want to veer off into a sort of related topic, but this is not one that I warned you we were going to talk about ahead of time. So this is a little okay. bit of an ambush, a uh, little, little ambush, which I promised you I wasn't going to do, but I'm doing it anyway. Uh, you are, you are an excellent photographer. And I know you do a lot of your own photography. I know you did a lot of photography, actually, for the uh, Disposable Heroes 2 book. Yep. Uh, so you, you're you very talented at that. And I would love to just pick your brain briefly for what people can do at home. Because everybody's got a cell phone now. And as you said, most of these cell phones are pretty good. Um, yep. What can people do at home to step up the quality of their photos a little bit? And these could be photos that they're going to maybe use in their rule book or photos that they're using on their blog. I mean, you know, people are posting their wargaming photos to Instagram all over the place, which is great. Um, yep. Are there any are there any tips that you might offer for people who aren't professional photographers or don't have that background, that things that they might want to look out for to produce a better photograph? Sure thing. There is. Um, the biggest one, I'm gonna, oh, there are two things, two biggest things. <laughs> two biggest <laughs> things, good. The biggest things. Um, one of them is lighting. So lighting is important, uh, but more ambient lighting, I guess, rather than direct lighting. Direct lighting will cast shadows uh, that your camera will pick up. Uh, and if you want to take want to take a shot that looks like where where the the reader or the the person looking at your book can could imagine that these are uh, like continental soldiers walking down a a lane in Massachusetts in 1775. Uh, then you want to avoid things that wouldn't be there, like unnatural hard shadows, which will come from direct lights, de like desk lamps pointed at the miniature. They'll give you great, you'll be able to see the, the front of the miniature great, but the shadows behind will give it away. Particularly if you've got multiple sources of light like that, they'll um, you'll get multiple heavy shadows which is completely unnatural. So um, diffuse the lights. Uh, if you can put like parchment paper in front of the, the lights or um, that kind of thing. It, if you're going to be doing a lot of it, um, I've got uh, like a set of uh, soft boxes, they're called. So light setups, they've got a whole bunch of um, bulbs inside and they're, uh, they've got the, the big soft uh, light diffuser at the front. Uh, people have seen them all the time at uh, professional photography studios and, and that sort of thing. You go and get your portraits done, that kind of thing. Um, those are becoming incredibly cheap now. You can pick those up for under 100, 100 bucks. Um, so if you're going to be doing a lot of it, probably worth looking into. But otherwise, just try and um, bounce light off our, the room around you. A lot of people might open the curtains so they've got natural light coming in. Natural light, can't, you can't control natural light. So I would just close those curtains back up, do that, get, get a whole bunch of desk lamps, really, um, as a way to, to get that lighting moving around the, the table. 
Um, and the second thing is depth of field. Uh, so depth of field is uh, talks about the um, is a sort of description of the depth of the focal sort of the focal length or the focal depth of the photo um, where things within that distance are in focus things before it are out of focus things behind it are out of focus this is the biggest problem that we have with miniatures is that we want to get like a large range of stuff in focus but the miniature at the front is what the camera particularly cell phone camera focuses on which means that we're going to get that in focus but everything else is going to be a blur behind it or if the camera might decide halfway through, hey, that other guy looks more interesting. I'm going to focus on him. And then all of a sudden, your guy in the foreground is out of focus. Um, even to the point where, like in advertising, they've tried to make things look miniature. They've taken like a, there's a drone shot of real life, but they they bring the foreground and the background out of focus. So it looks like little miniatures walking around. Um, that's it's what we think when when we see that, we think miniatures. But uh, what you can do with a cell phone is step back a little bit further because your cell phone typically doesn't have a variable depth of field. You're not able to change that on a, like a DSL, a digital SLR camera or straight up SLR film camera, you can change, you can adjust that depth of field. Um, so you want to go for quite a large depth of field so you can get things in the foreground, things in the background, all in focus. I think one time at um, uh, the host uh, in Lancaster for one of the shows, uh, probably Cold Wars, I think, uh, I took a photo of um, a Crimean, one of the Crimean war tables. Uh, it was up in the, the lobby. And we all know that, well, those of us who have been to the host know that the lobby lighting is terrible. But this, it is. Ooh, that is charitable, Dave. Ter terrible is charitable there. Charitable, for sure. But the, the table was like 24 feet long. And I was able to get a shot from that had stuff in focus in the front of the table, like the end of the table I was at, all the way to the back of the table. Because I used a, like a it was like F30, um, which is the, the depth of field. So a great depth of field. But when you use, uh, when you increase that depth of field, it really dials down your, uh, the aperture, the opening that's letting the light through. So something like that required a 30 second exposure. I had to make sure that nobody walked in front of the camera in that time. So like a blur. Don't move. Don't move. Everybody stand still. Make sure that's what I did. I said, everybody, this is going to take like 30 seconds. Everybody stand still. Make sure nobody walks near the table. And you're going to hear a click. That isn't it. <laughs> That'll be the shutter opening. <laughs> um, but when we're talking, um, so you, you can get that sort of thing with a DSLR um, as long as you've got the right setup. Uh, even if you've got terrible lighting uh you can get you can get that with a cell phone it's a little bit more difficult or with a camera where you're not able to adjust that depth of field um so what you need to do is just step back a little bit further uh, and the camera will will basically compress everything into that depth of field so you can still get shots where person in the foreground midground and background is is in focus and usually a lot of cell phones these days you can select the point of focus so you can tap on the piece, tap on the image that you want to be at the front or the, the most, the one that's closest to you, uh, and and do that rather than as you get for get closer to it, it won't uh, it won't be able to gather all of the, the depth of field that you're talking about. Um, hopefully this is all 
reasonably easy to understand. <laughs> but um, people can experiment with it with their cameras, um, go up close, take a really close shot and then step back a little bit further, take a close shot and then zoom in and have a look at it. Yeah, if you, but if you're for publication, for, uh, for printing, if you are, if you do want to have a big battle shot that spreads across two pages, go for a, a professional photo setup there rather than uh, a shot on your phone, a, a, an in-game shot or um, a miniature and scenery shot um, throughout the book. Most cell phones net these days can do a fantastic job of that. They put out um, images that you can definitely use. So that'd be the, the things to think about with photography. So well, you, you you handled the ambush pretty well. So. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that, that's, no, that's, that's, that's there's a, there's a whole bunch of scientific answers for that one. I didn't have to uh, philosophize about anything. <laughs> That's great. Um, so as, as we wrap up here, I, uh, last big question would be, I guess, for people who are listening, who maybe are working on a homebrew set or a set that they intend to publish and are thinking to themselves, ah, you know what? I'm not, I'm not cut out to lay this thing out myself. Um, you know, how, how would people go about hiring someone like yourself or, or another kind of consultant to do this? What does that world look like? And how do people connect with you or with others that could do this with them? Right, um, pretty much uh, like much of the wargaming sort of world, uh, it's, there's, it's word of mouth really uh, is where, where we're all at. There's no real um, place that you can go to find a specific list, but uh, it would be talk to, um, talk to, basically talk to somebody who, uh, who's has a book that you you love to look at, look of, look like a game publisher. Um, uh, for example, if Lon, if somebody said, "Oh, I really love the look of Disposable Heroes 2, um, Lon at Brigade Games, who laid this out for you?" Well, that'd be Dave. Here's his email. Um, that kind of thing. Uh, there are a, there are a few of us that I know of. Um, a friend of mine, Tim Toolan, uh, recently sort of joined the uh, it's like the freelance market last year perfect year to do it no uh, <laughs> that's right I, there, there have been times when i've uh, i've had more work on my plate than i can handle so i've passed it to tim um but there are other folks around who do um two great stuff uh graham davy who runs um gray for now games uh with test of honor graham does layout graham does editing he did a lot of i uh, used to work on the uh, uk version of um white dwarf uh so uh, there there are there are a few of us out there that you can it was almost going to go into like the a-team spiel <laughs> <laughs> but i can't remember exactly how it goes but we're not really not the a-team we're kind of the b-team but uh or the layout team but you can find us uh out there um failing that um there are uh well you might be able to find in a um at a local university there'll be uh design students um somebody who's looking to, to put something into their resume uh, and if, as long as you've got a strong idea of what you're looking for, um, you can get you can get a great result from somebody who isn't isn't a war gamer. Um, as long as you've you've been able to provide them the information in the chunks where you can say, okay, yeah, I want the page to break here, and I want it to look good, and I don't want to have everything jammed together or just a, a straight sort of text flow, uh, you can you can get that, that from them. So there'd be your two sort of approaches. So what? Uh... What are the projects that you're working on right now? Uh, at the moment, I am, uh, what am I laying out? 
I'm laying out uh, the second and third ages books for the Genesis Project. Uh, I mentioned that earlier. Um, when was it? It was, uh, yeah, late last year. Uh, Gary went to Kickstarter with the to to fund those. Genesis Project is a, a game which is um, the rules itself can span a number of different uh, ages. So, first age is like a medieval fantasy. Second age is modern slash post-apocalyptic, and third age is uh, far future sci-fi, like hard sci-fi kind of look. Um, so I'm working on those, which is nice. I can follow it, the template we created for the first age. Uh, I am also working on the first of the first three books in a series that I'm publishing myself uh, as Dave Taylor Miniatures. Um, the series is called The Art of, and they're, um, they're basically art books focusing on different miniatures artists. Uh, so the first first book is the uh, Miniature Monthly, who are a collective three uh, three artists who do a lot of coaching and training. They have a Patreon called Miniature Monthly, uh, so it's talking to each of them. They each have a very different style and a very different approach. So we put them all together in a book. Uh, then I've got two other books, individual artists for each of those: Christoph Kyle and uh, Anna Polanschuk, who do um, who've taken their miniature art in ways that a lot of people don't usually do it. So um, Anna's fantastic at world building. She does a lot of uh, set, like creating different settings um, that are super evocative and very, um, she's got a very sort of dark and macabre kind of approach. Um, a lot of it's based on um, a lot of uh, like European, Eastern European fairy tales and that kind of thing. Uh, Christoph is very much a, uh, he's a kit basher and he will create miniatures from all sorts of kits. He sees shapes in pieces from, uh, from miniatures that other people don't see and he switches them around and crams them together to create beautiful looking miniatures that, uh, that are just completely unusual. So laying those three books out is very interesting because I went through and I worked with Christoph first on the first couple of sections for his book and then worked on some of Anna's and some of uh, Miniature Monthly book, created the grid and then looked at ways to break it to be unique for each of those books. So that's been um, a really fun sort of exciting layout project from, uh, from, from that point of view. But it's uh, yeah, definitely a project I'm, I'm loving. And it's, it's one of the things I really love is taking the different, different elements, the graphic elements of photos, illustrations, um, the graphic items like texture or page, page numbers or whatever it might happen to be, and the words and jamming them together into something that, that looks really cool and people want to read. So um, doing that, those should be available in retail in January, I think, um, January, Fe January, February, maybe. But uh, we're going to finish them up and get them printed and sent off to all the Kickstarter backers. Well, that's, ex that's exciting. That's cool. So they're the, they're the ones that I'm working on at the moment. The last one I worked on was Terrain Essentials with Mel Bowes. Oh, well, that was a big project. Oh, my goodness was a big project yeah the the book itself swelled to uh almost 200 pages um one of my so i i do editing and then i have another editor to catch all the stuff that i don't get um or if i'm not feeling like it that day he gets those sections as well um yeah uh, his comment was uh why use 10 like mel's approach to writing is why use 10 words when 30 words would do um <laughs> but, uh, it's really it's all because Mel's just as passionate about terrain making as I am about putting books books together. 
but yeah, it was great. It was really exciting to to work on that. It took us took us a while. There were a lot of uh, sort of things going on, like global pandemics and health issues and so on. But uh, we got there in the end, and we're really we're both very proud of the the product that we've created. Yeah, one of the guys in the one of the guys in our club was an early backer of that and brought the book in for us all to oogle over, and uh, it I, worth the wait. I would say it was really nice, really yeah. really nice book. There is a there's a lot of there are a lot of photos in there. A lot of photos. <laughs> you expect that in a because it's an instructional book. It gives you uh, sort of the steps to to go through and create things, um, or at least the to go through the techniques so that you know how to apply them to whatever it is you're building. So um, that was uh, definitely definitely a great project. Mel's talking uh, now and signing his planning for his second book. Um, oh boy. We're gonna yeah, you're, take get, that. you're getting nervous now, aren't you? <laughs> I am totally. No, uh, we have an agreement, and the agreement is uh, he doesn't, he won't send anything to me until he has it all written. All written, all the photos taken, he sends it to me. I can lay it out, and then we can take it to Kickstarter. So <laughs> we can we can avoid those. those Lesson learned. Yeah. <laughs> we, we got wait. We work ways around it. I always like to say that I only make the same. I, I don't make the same mistake twice. I find it like a new and exciting way to make mistakes. So every time we're always going to make mistakes and we're always going to get things wrong, but uh, as long as we can recover from them, right? Well, hey, uh, it's been a great conversation and I appreciate you carving out an hour this evening to talk about graphic design and laying out rule books. It's, it's been great. Um, uh, as, we, as we close out, um, how can people connect with you if they want to uh, see more of your projects and, uh, and get in touch with you? Where should they go? Sure thing. Um, the probably the most central place would be DaveTaylorMiniatures.com. So DaveTaylorMiniatures, all one word. dot uh, com. Uh, there are links there to my uh, social media pages. So um, Facebook and Instagram, where I'm, I'm on. Uh, they can email me at TanithTaylor uh, at gmail dot com. So Tanith T A N I T H T A Y L O R, all one word. Uh, yeah, any of that sort of thing. Um, happy to chat. Happy to answer any questions, that kind of thing. Talk about projects uh, and continue to, to help move uh, the, the, the presentation of war games into sort of new and exciting uh, avenues. Well, there you have it, guys. Some great advice from Dave Taylor in this podcast. And now that Greg is completing the layout and design work on Live Free or Die, our homebrew rule design series draws to an end. Months ago, when we started this podcast, you heard Tom and Greg go from the very earliest days of conceptual planning through playtesting, revisions, and more playtesting. And now that game is ready to see the light of day as a polished, fully formed rule set. In fact, by the time you listen to this podcast, the game should already be available on our website, littlewarstv.com. But if you remember back to the very first episode of our series, you may recall that Live For Your Die didn't begin its life as a brand new concept. Tom and Greg started this whole journey by finding a magazine article from 1987 called Loose Files and American Scramble. That old black and white article provided the initial inspiration that would eventually evolve into what we now call Live For Your Die. Tom and Greg originally just said that they would tinker with loose files. But after months of development, they wound up making a whole lot more changes than expected. 
But despite all those changes, Live Free or Die still owes a debt to the original author of that 1987 article. I know I said this would be the last chapter in our multi-part podcast series, but this book comes with a surprise epilogue. And I think it's a surprise you guys will absolutely love, bringing our entire story full circle. I'll let Greg and Tom take it from here. Tom, today you and I are joined by a, a special guest. Uh, we are joined from across the pond by uh, Andy Callen, who has been writing and designing war game rules for a very, very long time. And uh, I think we're, we're both pretty excited to, to talk to him about one of his latest projects and some of his previous work. That's right. A legend. A legend, indeed. How are you, Andy? I'm very good. Yes, um, you're quite right. I'm a historical wargamer, 67-year-old historical wargamer. Um, I reckon I have been writing rules since I was about 14 years old, so that's 50 years plus. Uh, the very first set I ever wrote, there were only ever three copies because it was done on carbon paper, and this was even before the invention of uh, photocopiers, so that shows how, how antediluvian I am. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then, then our first question is very appropriate because this is going to go back from before I was born. Right. Um, what uh, What is the first uh, historical war game that you actually can remember playing, and okay. do you know when uh, that would have been? I was been about 1968. It was as a local club. There, it, it was. Um, I'd seen an advert in a in a in a in a um, newspaper, new, news, news agent's window saying uh, wargaming, interested in wargaming, come along to such and such. And it was a local tobacconist, another vanished breed, really, I suppose. And uh, he had a little warehouse and he'd set up a big sand table in the back, in his back room, which was about 12 foot long by about six foot wide. And he'd set up a game of American Civil War using Britain's 54 mil uh, plastic um, plastic figures. So there are hundreds of them on this thing. And uh, it lit a little light bulb in my adolescent brain. And it's something uh, that's been glowing away ever since. So that was that was the start of it. I've never I've never actually achieved the uh, sand table. That was a bit of a dream in the early days of uh, war gaming, but it was utterly impractical because the damn things weighed a ton and uh, they were always losing sand all over the place. So they're very antisocial. No wife would ever put up with a sand table in the house. So. <laughs> I've never played on a sand table. I've actually never even seen one in person. Well, yeah, that was that was the way that used to be done. Um, but uh, we, we've we, we've improved things since then a bit. Yeah. And uh, it's not atypical for American Civil War to be the choice of. Uh... British uh, players of a certain age. We always wonder. Oh, I don't know. I think it was very popular. The thing is that um, they were the first, they were the war games army everybody, everybody could afford because of the Airfix um, 172nd range. Right. Uh, you could buy them for, you know, two shillings in, a, in the local Woolworths. And um, they were already blue and grey, so you didn't <laughs> really have to do much to them apart from touch them up, touch up the muskets and put a bit of flesh here and there. Uh -huh. So you could have big armies quickly and everybody of my age will have cut their teeth on, on those, uh, on those figures. Yeah. I'd love to just take a, a foray to talk about loose files for a minute. Okay. So that was back in the, in the late eighties. You, if you wrote that, I think it was the first ever issue of war games illustrated. Yes, it was. It was an issue number one. So it's got a little, little sidebar saying AWI rules by Andy Callan on it. So that was quite good. So I also had a, a rule set in, uh, number 300 so i'm hoping to still be around for number 500 that'd be quite good 
really pushing your luck there. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, we, 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 you know, you never know. <laughs> uh, I, I find it very interesting that all these years later, I mean, 1987 in wargaming terms is like generations ago because games yeah. are so disposable now, you know, yes. a new game comes up and people play it. And then literally like six months to a year later, nobody's playing that game anymore. Yeah. And yet Loose Files and American Scramble still has a very active following. People are still yes. playing that game. So what, yes. what, what do you have any sense of what it is about that game that has kept the momentum all these years later? How has it survived this long? No, if I knew, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be writing rules like that every, every six months or so, wouldn't I? But it's, it's, it, it's, it's a bit like with Bill Hooks. It, it's somehow it just hits a sweet spot and, you can't predict how it's going to be. I mean, I think, I think the thing about Loose Files is, is that it's anybody who reads about the American War of Independence realizes that the Hollywood version just ain't true and that the Brits weren't just stupid pipe clayed redcoats marching around like automata being shot down by Davy Crockett lookalikes. They were actually pretty handy guys. Once they got past the, you know, once they got past the stage of um, got past the sort of Bunker Hill stage, that they 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 shook things out and uh, got to be just as good as operating in the uh, American terrain as as, as the locals. Um, the thing was, there weren't there weren't enough of them, and uh, uh, the British government never backed them up. But I mean, you know, governments never back troops up with the, with with enough resources to do the job they sent them to do. So it was it was quite a uh, first of many, really. But the game itself. No, it's lots of things happen. You, it's lots of things keeping the, the commanders busy. They're constantly trying to rally the troops and sort them out and the terrain gets in the way. And um, you have two different styles, really, don't you? With the Brits, they've got this bayonet charge, which is very scary to anybody who hasn't got a bayonet. Um, and, uh, yeah, but they, they usually end up losing, you know, so many men that it's, uh, you know, they can't carry on taking those sort of things so no I, if i knew how if i knew why it was so successful i'd be writing more like it but it's just you know just 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 luck really or, or a mixture of luck and judgment but i'm, I'm delighted to see it. it's still uh, it's still being used um so it's great in fact it's the only it's the only set of war rules that war games illustrated were ever republished um and of course uh, back in the day you know once it was in the magazine for one issue that was it was gone forever uh, but at least it gets a, a, a bit of a wider traction these days. Um, uh, it is 40 years ago, so for goodness sake, don't ask me any detailed questions about it because I, I'm not sure I could remember now. I do have a working theory on what, why it's remains so popular. And my, my two-part theory to that is that, number one, there are surprisingly few rules designed for that period. You know, World yeah. War II, you can find 100 different games, but... Yeah. AWI, it's really only a handful of games. So when you search for that now, if you go on Google and you know, just type it in, you're not going to get a whole lot of games. And I also think that Loose Files was really ahead of its time in that it's extremely, extremely short, which you know makes sense. It's a magazine article, but you know the, the world that we're in now, games have been getting shorter, figure counts have been getting lower. And I yeah. think that that's, that's really tapping into something where people are like, oh, yeah, a three-page game. Uh-huh, yeah, I want to play a yeah. three-page game. Yeah, 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 that's true. It's true. I mean, 
text expands to fill the space available, doesn't it? I mean, you know, and that typical rule set now has got you know, dozens of pages and lots of glossy photos, you know. Um, probably Bill Hooks 2 will, will go a bit that way, but, uh, you know, that's just the way of the world. Um, it all, st- I mean, both loose files and Bill Hooks, you know, really can be boiled down to about two pages of, uh, uh, of text, which is certainly all I used to work with before, before I had to explain it to a wider audience. Um, but the thing about, the, I suppose the difference between Bill Hooks and uh, Loose Files is that, is that um, l- l- people have been playing Loose Files for 40 years and, uh, you know, they haven't really um, had to change it to. I'm sure you'll, you'll all be tinkering with it and make little changes here and there, but, you know... Um, at least I haven't had 40 years of people emailing me by saying, what do you mean by that? You know, which is how it's been a bit with, uh, with Bill Hooks. Mm-hmm. It's my first introduction to the, 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 uh, the full horrors of Facebook. And something's coming in every, you know, at the start, something's coming in every couple of hours or so. It's driving me up. Well, anyway, you know, it's all been interesting. Been interesting. Well, we certainly have done a little bit of tinkering, haven't we, Tom, with loose files? Uh, we have. We have. That's true. We, we, well, we had a unique situation with running Brandywine for the American Battlefield Trust. Players who had never played war games are very limited. Oh, yeah. And we had to get it done. We had to film it and get it done in an in a afternoon. So there was a little yeah. bit of the input there. But it stood the yeah. test of time quite well. I mean, it really Well, that's a- good. That's good. I mean, I wouldn't expect it to, to survive without uh, completely untouched and uh, I'm sure you've come up with improvements so, so it's good but it's, it's just good to know it's still out there being used giving people pleasure after all these years it is well we want to we want to thank you for you know thank you for your contributions and in, in putting it together all those years ago because I think it's it's stood up uh, remarkably well 40 years on and you can't say that for too many war games <laughs> that's true it's an early example of asymmetric warfare actually you've got two different styles and that was that was what was attracting me at the time Wendy, I really want to thank you for taking the time to to join us. It's it's morning here in the U.S., but I know it's afternoon in the U.K., and we want to. It's let a you... balmy afternoon. It's uh, twenty five degrees at the moment, so that's pretty good. Pretty good for September in Nottinghamshire. I hope you enjoyed our surprise Andy Callan content, and I hope you enjoyed Greg and Tom's entire series on how to design homebrew wargaming rules. If you haven't had a chance yet, go over and watch the Brandywine episode on Little Wars TV. Along with this podcast, perhaps they'll give you some ideas, or I dare say, inspiration for your next homebrew project. We would like to thank all the guys over at the American Battlefield Trust, Jim Perkey of Fife and Drum Miniatures, Dave Taylor, and of course, Andy Callan. For more of the Andy Callan interview, please stay tuned next week for 15 Questions with Andy Callan, hosted by Greg and Tom. And a huge final thank you to all our patrons over on Patreon who make what we do at Little Wars TV possible. If anyone is interested to purchase a printed or PDF copy of the rules, they can visit our website and half of the profits will go to the American Battlefield Trust. Cheers, knights.